Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman, and it's such a joy to be joined today by Yaa Giasi, who was born in Ghana and raised in Huntsville, Alabama. Her debut novel, Homegoing, won her the National Book Critics Circle John Leonard Award for Best First Book, the Penn Hemingway Award for First Fiction, and the National Book Awards, and the National Book Foundation's Five Under 35 Honors. Her second novel, Transcendent Kingdom, is out now in paperback. Welcome, Yaa. Hi, thank you for having me. Yeah. Tell me, tell me what it's like. It must, this must be a weird experience. So your second novel came out in September of last year, September, 2020. Mm -hmm. Um, And your paperback comes out, uh, has come out in July. Mm -hmm. And the world has changed, or this, this area of the world at least has changed a lot since then. Tell me. Tell me what it's like. Yeah, um, I mean, for the hardback, there was still so much uncertainty. I remember, you know, earlier on in the pandemic thinking, oh, maybe things will be back to normal by September. So I had this like lingering weird sense of hope that I'd be able to go on a regular tour. Um, And as the months passed and I slowly realized that, you know, Zoom was my new normal, (laughs) um, I kind of settled into that. Um, and I think weirdly, uh, that, that lent itself kind of well to having the book come out at that time, because September was a period where people were already kind of used to the Zoom format, like bookstores had gotten into a rhythm of how to do the online events. So I didn't, I didn't really have very many like, um, technical hiccups, uh, which was a blessing. Um, Always. I certainly, (laughs) yes. Um, but I certainly miss the like, you know, just all of the stuff that goes along with a uh, face-to-face book tour, like getting to talk to people in the signing line or um, hearing people's stories about how the book had touched them, like um, credit to all of the the bookstores and libraries who kept the chat very active. Um, I loved hearing where people came from in the chat, but it, it wasn't the same. No. Um, now things are, as you said, getting better in this part of the world and we're moving more freely. Like I, I ate indoors at a restaurant for the first time last week. So, um, so there's that, but I'm still going on a virtual tour. There's still, there's still like right. a, a bit of continuity from the hardback to the paperback. Um, and so there's still stuff that I will miss, but I'm, I'm definitely thankful that things are starting to open up a bit more and hoping um, that as I do start to travel in the fall, um, I'll get to see more, more readers. Well, I hope so too. Yeah. What is it like with, with the paperback coming out, um, going back and kind of putting yourself into the world of the book again? Like, I assume you've been working on the other things since then. And so it takes some adjustment. Yeah, it does. It. I mean, it's like seeing an old friend um, that you haven't seen in a long time. You think, oh, I've got to catch up. Like, let me let me remember the the stories that we shared together. Um, so it, it's nice in that way. Like, you get to reflect on the time that you spent working on something, um, all the years that you spent kind of getting to know the characters of this book that you left behind um so it's it's always like a a sweet moment for me to to get to go back out has anything changed uh, in terms of the way you feel about your characters or the notes the book lands on um since since the time you first wrote it 
No, not really. Like I, I've always felt such great affection for the characters of this novel. Like they feel, um, I've, I've never been one of those writers that feels like, you know, the characters are, are speaking to me or are like walking with me in my head. And yet for Transcendent Kingdom, like I did feel a kind of closeness to these characters um, in a way that made me kind of sad to leave them behind. So I think um, getting to revisit them as I talk about the book on on tour for paperback, I think is just a, a deepening of that relationship that we had already developed. That's great. And one of my favorite things um, is when I'm reading, when I finished reading a novel and then I read the acknowledgements and kind of get the origin story for the book. And so I loved that with yours. Tell me about your friend, the neuroscientist and how you came to write about the brain. Sure. I actually, I love acknowledgement pages myself and I actually read them first. Oftentimes, I don't know, sometimes that's a spoilery thing to do, but, um, but there's something really lovely about kind of getting to know where a book came from in that way. Um, this book came from a, um, a dear, dear friend. Her name is Tina Kim and she is a neuroscientist. Um, And at the time that I started working on Transcendent Kingdom, she was uh, finishing up a PhD at Stanford in neuroscience. Um, And she she studies the phenomenon, uh, reward-seeking behavior that Gifty in the novel studies. Um, And at at the time I was kind of, I was in between books. I was writing what I thought was going to be a second book, but it wasn't very good. And I wasn't excited to sit down every day. I thought, let me just think about other things and, and put it put it aside. Um, and Tina, my friend, um, had this paper that was coming out um, and I wanted to read that paper um, and try to and realize that I didn't understand a word of it, um, which was really strange. I've known her since high school uh, and we have been kind of walking these parallel lives for so many years, but I realized at some point she had veered off in this direction that I, I couldn't follow her down. Um, whereas she still kind of understood everything about me and she's a big reader um, Mm. and has been supportive of my career in that way. Um, But at any rate, I just kind of asked if I could go shadow her in her lab um, at that point, just out of curiosity about what she did all day. Um, And it was spending that time with her in her lab and seeing her kind of light up. I, I liken it to like seeing somebody you love out of context when you're not like expecting to see them. Like, your partner and you're like, oh, they are really hot. Like it felt, it <laughs> felt nice to, um, to see her in this different, in this different setting and to realize that, um, yes, of course, like she's as brilliant as, as I always suspected, but in this totally, totally different way. Um, and it made me want to write. Uh, so that's where Transcendent Kingdom came from. Amazing. Um, tell me about first learning some of the, the science um, and then translating it for for a regular general reading audience it was really fun I you know I hadn't taken a class on anything frankly since college (laughs) or since graduate school um, when I when I started writing Transcendent Kingdom and there was something really really great about like doing a deep dive into subject matter that you don't know anything about. Like it, it felt like I was getting to stretch these old muscles that I actually used to enjoy using, but had forgotten about, um, which is just that of learning something new. So um, I, I started with 
Tina obviously as a kind of primary resource. Um, she was very helpful and uh, showed me articles and books that that might be useful to me. Um, and yeah, it was just a, a deep dive into this very specific world of neuroscience and optogenetics. Um, but all that said, like I'm still a lay person. There's still so much that I can't understand about what's going on in the science, even after having um, read these research texts. And so I think knowing that or understanding that I was a lay person and other lay people would be reading it um, made it really um made it easier to think of how to um, translate the science that I was reading into something that that people could easily understand and keep up with. Um, so um, it didn't feel like too much of a challenge, mostly because I, I also had like this kind of elementary understanding of, of what was <laughs> happening. It's amazing. Um, and, and tell me about a career in science as um, an indicator of a certain personality traits. Ooh, that's, should I not say personality traits? I hadn't, now I'm getting into a whole meta conversation in my head about it. Um, characteristics, how about that? Mm, sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, what I, what I like about Gifty as a character is that she, um, she's so clear in her desire to, as she would put it, like be good. But what that means for her, I think, is to like have the world work in this way that she's able to understand. Like she wants, um, she wants two plus two to equal four and she's gonna figure out how to get there even if the pieces aren't really fitting. Um, and when she's younger, that drive to make sense, make order out of the world um, lends itself really well to religion uh, and to the kind of strictures of that, um, of the religion that she grows up in. But then as she gets older, uh, that no longer works for her and science kind of becomes the way to do that thing, the way to, again, like make sense out of a world in which senseless things happen. Um, and it's not perfect. And I think by the time we get to the end of the novel, you realize that she understands that it's not perfect, um, but she's drawn to that. Um, and I think it comes from a place of deep curiosity um, uh, about what the world means, uh, what it means to be an animal. Um, and, and in that way, I think science and her personality are kind of, um, equally matched. Yeah. And it's, it's a classic theme, right? Science versus religion, but we, we mm. tend to look at it as such, to look at them as such binary poles. Yeah. And it's really thrilling to be able to see both. Yeah, um, well, I think for, for Gifty, part of the reason she's not able to completely discard her religion, even as she becomes disillusioned by it, is because her mother's still quite pious, like her mother's so faithful. Um, and in some ways, religion and faith become like the, the only shared language that these two women have. Um, and so I think her her generosity toward a um, sect of religion, um, this is specific to evangelicalism and Pentecostalism, um, that was really harmful to her in some ways. Uh, I think that generosity comes from the fact that it's it's this bridge between her and, and her mother. Yeah, and it, 
she, we see her kind of battling all of these conflicting feelings about her body and what the church um, allowed her to learn and um, what there is to gain from a literal reading of the Bible versus a more metaphorical one. But there's no doubt that it provides actual life support for, for her mother. Yeah, that's right. I think, um, you know, when we meet her mother, she's really suffering. She's going through her second bout of major depressive disorder. And she comes from uh, both a religious community and an ethnic community that kind of um, uh, are suspicious of mental health practitioners and mental health practices. Um, and so really the only thing that Gifty's mother accepts um, in the vein of mental health care is, is prayer um, right. and her church community. And so Gifty being a scientist obviously understands her mother's disease in a, in a way that her mother doesn't want to see it understood, um, but then giving kind of culturally sensitive care in Gifty's case would mean kind of meeting her mother where she is, um, which again is like being open to the faith. Um, and so this kind of, um, this like caretaking role, um, Gifty steps into this caretaking role that I, I think really kind of deepens their relationship in some ways. And, um, and weirdly enough, given Gifty's break from the church, um, it's, it's the religion that allows her to have this deepening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, it's a real feat that you're able to, Gifty's mother thinks that saying I love you is white people foolishness, which I appreciate. <laughs> Um, and yet we can see the love coming through even in the, the worst of times. Yeah, I do think, um, Gifty's mother is such a difficult, um, person, uh, such a difficult character. She's incredibly reticent. And oftentimes when you see her both through Gifty's perspective and Gifty's, um, reminiscing, and also when you see her in the present, um, she's this kind of fearsome, um, often fierce woman. Uh, you don't see her softness very much. You see it in, in small glimpses, especially when she's with Gifty's older brother, Nana, but you don't see it. You don't see tenderness um, very frequently from her. Um, and yet the moments when, when that tenderness does show up, I think, um, are, are really dear, uh, both to, to us as readers, but also to Gifty. And yet her reticence certainly provides uh, an explanation of some sorts as to why Gifty is pretty isolated and has trouble trusting people and um, being a part of something bigger other than, than church, is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. I think of Gifty as uh, not just lonely uh, as a character, but also incredibly isolated, as you said. She grows up with um, this, this reticent mother who has 
uprooted them from Ghana to a state in the United States that is particularly, can be particularly cruel to Black people. They find themselves on the white part of this town in, in Alabama. Um, and because of that, Gifty, I think, experiences this kind of dual isolation, this isolation within isolation. Not only is she not around other Ghanaians, she's also not around other Black people. Um, and she's having to kind of navigate this, um, this loneliness by herself, essentially, because her mother doesn't, um, doesn't or, or won't, for whatever reason, um, meet her where she is. Um, and so Gifty has to learn so much alone. Um, and so that, that loneliness, I think, becomes incredibly defining to who she is um, and why she does the things that she does and how she sees the world. Yeah. Tell me about your understanding of addiction. Did it start from your friend's um, lab work? Um, it did sort of start from my friend's lab work in that um, because my friend focuses on uh, addiction and depression specifically, um, I knew that that I would be kind of writing toward or thinking about those two things in this book. Um, but I think the other thing that really informed it was that around the time that I started writing this book um, in 2017, like there was a great deal of really amazing reporting coming out of about the opioid epidemic, um, an epidemic that is ongoing, although obviously um, has kind of taken a backseat to, to the pandemic news. Um, but yeah, I was reading so many really moving um, and uh, humanizing pieces around not just the people who were suffering from opioid use disorder, but the ripple effect um, of, of their disease, uh, the, all the people who were touched by um, touched by addiction, whether it was, you know, grandparents who found themselves having to raise their grandchildren mm -hmm. or uh, uh, firefighters who were learning how to deliver um, life-saving uh, overdose medications or um, even, even pieces that were finally kind of willing to investigate the role of pharmaceutical companies in creating this problem. Um, and what I noted about all of this reporting was that um, because this is uh, an epidemic that at this point is largely affecting white people in rural and suburban areas, there was so much more tenderness shown to the crisis and so so much um, less of a willingness to talk about it as a, as a criminal issue um, and more of a willingness to talk about it as a, as a healthcare problem in ways that we didn't see for the crack epidemic um, of the 80s or the previous heroin epidemic of the 60s, which largely affected black people in cities. Um, and, so, and so it felt like this kind of bittersweet thing to see us moving in the right direction, but to understand that part of why we were moving in the right direction um, is because this was like starting to um, reach white people's door in a way that it hadn't before. Um, and so this book felt like an opportunity to think about um, all of that, um, but to do so in a way that, that centered Black people's experiences. Yeah. And it's Gifty grapples with the idea of some people just don't seem to have addictive personalities, is what we like to say, <laughs> or yeah. think. And it's hard if you've watched someone you love struggle to think about it as something 
that goes beyond choice. Yeah, right. Incredibly hard. And, you know, hard because we're not really, you know, you're not really meant to think about the functionings of your brain. Like yeah. it's, it, it's supposed to be this like seamless, quiet thing that's happening in the background, mm-hmm. like as with all of your organs, right? Like you, you don't spend any time thinking about um, the mechanics of, of why you're alive um, and, and the brain in particular, which forms your personality um, can kind of trick you into thinking that you have more choice over things than um, than you actually do. And so to see Gifty in the lab, um, kind of, um, you know, dissecting um, the, the mechanics of addiction, I think is really helpful um, for people who kind of struggle to think about um, the brain as an organ in the same way that, you know, your lungs are, um, the same way that your skin is. Um, and to understand that if something is malfunctioning in any of your body parts, um, you would get help um, and people would hopefully not belittle you and make fun of you and decide that you have no will, willpower. Um, but for some reason, when it comes to addiction and, and other, I think, mental illnesses, yeah. um, we, we don't see it that way. We don't think of it um, as, as an organ that is struggling. Yeah, and so Gifty works with mice. Um, mm-hmm. And it's, I think she says pretty close to the beginning, she mentions the dangers of humanizing the mice, which yeah. is is hard, probably as a scientist, hard for me as a reader. I don't know if yeah. it, it was a struggle for you as a writer as well. Yeah, definitely hard for me as a writer. Um, I think, you know, I, obviously I was like using the mice to, to metaphorical end. So I yes, was kind indeed. of humanizing them yes. um, because I needed to like see them, compare them to, to the lives of the, of the people in the novel. Um, but I can't, I mean, I can't imagine spending all day with these creatures and not seeing, um, humanizing even feels like the wrong word, but like not recognizing that there's, um, right that there's something more to uh, to everything that's alive. Um, we were talking before this about our dogs. Like you just you just know like if you spend any time with a with a creature that that um, the way that we like tend to center ourselves or want to center ourselves is like the smartest, the best, the most interesting creatures on the planet. Like it can't you can't do that as much when you like live with another thing that is that is like exuding, exhibiting this behavior that feels, um, we're gonna call it human, because that's the yeah, word. Yeah, <laughs> I, I realized that I was centering humans. <laughs> it's hard not to. Um, yeah, yeah, that's but... the word for humanity that's not humanity. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but when you were observing your friend in the lab, were, I mean, were you, interacting with the mice were you tell yeah, me about that. Um, were they really hooked on insure I kind of they really were hooked on insure and she um I mean the day that I that I went she performed a surgery on her mice um one of the ones that I detail in the early pages of the novel so I was getting to see her 
um, do some of the, I won't describe it for people who are squeamish, but like getting her to see her do some of the, um, the more kind of graphic elements of, of this work um, on the brain. And it was a strange thing. Like I, there, that description um, in the early pages about them living in a kind of shoebox home, like that's me as a non-scientist, like imposing my view of what, what that box looked like. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is like a, a strange thing to like watch um, my friend, but also just uh, anyone I'm sure, like grab a mouse and then start like putting it under anesthesia. Like it's a, um, it's hard not to like feel for the mouse as a, as a lay person. Um, I wonder if if she would say the same thing, like if she's kind of become desensitized to that work in some way Um, or thinks about it like, I don't know, if you had like a pet lizard or something and you have to feed it crickets, like if you're thinking about the like larger um, goal of the thing, which is the science, then maybe you you don't have to think about the humanity of the cricket. One of the studies that Gifty brings up in the novel is one that I really wanted to ask you about. Um, It's a study about schizophrenics in India and Ghana versus America and the the kinds of voices that they hear. I'm going to assume that that's based on a real paper. Yeah, the the paper that's cited in the book is the real paper. It's by um, a Stanford professor named uh, Tanya Lerman. Um, and I, I read it, I think the New York Times kind of um, made a synopsis of it when it when it first came out. So I read it that year in 2015 and found it really, really fascinating. Um, because I think so much of um, it just kind of highlighted for me how so much of what we think of as um, disease or disorder has to do with, uh, with our culture and the way that we perceive um, people who uh, who are kind of acting differently from us. Um, yeah, I found it really, really beautiful, uh, that paper. Yeah, the idea that doesn't all have to be to be bad. Have you heard at all from scientists and or um, religious people or formerly religious people about what they've taken away from the book? Hmm. Um, I have a bit actually um, speaking about um, Tanya Lerman. I got a chance to speak to her class um, um, via Zoom earlier on in the pandemic. And that was really uh, interesting for me. She teaches, um, I think it's uh, anthropology. Um, And then I also did an event with um, scientists at the Broad Institute. Um, so that was also interesting for me. Um, it has been, I think it's just always the best part of publishing a novel is getting to hear from people who, um, the novel like touches in some way or who feel like something resonant. Um, and so, yeah, for both, both scientists and I think people who, um, grew up with religion and, and people who have loved ones who have struggled with addiction. Yeah. Um, it's, it's all, yeah, I've, I've heard from, from all sorts of people. I think one of the great things about the book, which is very layered, um, is that so many people can kind of find themselves in, in one aspect of it, even if they don't find themselves in, in all of it. Of course. Um, yeah, thank you so much. Before we go, um, will you please recommend some books for us? 
Uh, sure, I'd love to. Um, I recently read No One Is Talking About This by Patricia Lockwood, um, and I, I just loved it. I thought it was something incredibly special. There's there's this point where, first of all, it's just hilarious, and so you're um, laughing through most of it, and then the second half, it switches tenor in this way, and it becomes still funny, but also quite sad, um, and so it's there's always like a... Um, there's always like a unique pleasure about reading something that makes you both laugh and cry. It's such a rare thing. Um, so I, I, I really loved that. Um, I also read Clara and the Sun by Kazuo Ishiguro, um, who is, I mean, he's peerless. Um, and, and that book is incredible. Um, and I, I really enjoyed it. Um, and then I, I actually, I, read for the first time, I'm late to the party, but I read The Fifth Season by N.K. Jemisin. Um, and I was just kind of uh, gobsmacked by it. It's so good. Um, it's really long. And the fact that I finished it so quickly and felt so immersed in it, I think um, only only speaks to its its genius. Um, so I can't wait to finish the rest of the, the books in the trilogy. I was going to say the whole trilogy or just the one? Yeah. Just the one. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Thank you so much. This was great. Sure. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.